So this evening I would like to talk about the qualities, different facets of the loving heart. We can think of the heart somewhat like a a jewel that when turned or when looked at has different qualities, different aspects. And at the core, at the center is the love, the metta that we're steadily connecting with, cultivating, rediscovering. And as different things arise in our experience and in our in our world, in our lives, how that I want to talk about how the the heart of the heart of metta shifts. So when when the when the heart is faced with difficulty and challenge and suffering and pain, how the quality of compassion is evoked and how we can cultivate that, what gets in the way of that. And also, similarly, when the heart turns to joy and happiness and and success and both in ourselves and in the world and the, the the joy of living in the world, how the quality of mudita, or appreciative joy, arises. So I'll first start talking about compassion. And whenever I think about compassion in the context of these teachings, I always think of the Buddha's awakening and his motivation for coming out of that deep realization and beginning to teach that when so so the the story goes when he came out of uh, some weeks of contemplation of his awakening he looked around and saw how much suffering there was in the world but particularly how much suffering is created by our own delusion by our own ignorance and that it was out of that motivation uh, to relieve, to help relieve the suffering of others that he decided to teach. And so the, the essence of compassion, the quality of compassion is really at the essence of this practice, the, uh, the origin of why these teachings came into birth. And one of my favorite uh, teachings that the Buddha gave at some point when he'd gathered many enlightened students and disciples and he's telling them uh, in one of his discourses to go forth to go forth for the welfare of the many for the happiness the good of the many to teach the dharma that's good in the beginning the middle and the end and it clearly has that force that came from his own realization of this teaching is liberating and spread the good word, not in a messianic way, but in a way of this relief suffering. This is, this is at the heart of what we're doing. And the quality of compassion, the, the most beautiful flowering of that is, is what's called bodhicitta. It's the, uh, the awakened heart that wishes for the, the, the relief and the welfare of suffering in the world.
it's at the cornerstone of the vow, um, the four great vows, one of them being all beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Seems like a uh, contradiction or oxymoron. Yet the, the desire when we're in that place of compassion, feeling the tenderness of the heart, it's that, that motivation that wishes to relieve the suffering of everything, everyone. There's a piece of writing from George Bernard Shaw, which I like very much, which in a more contemporary way talks about the power of this kind of motivation. He says, This is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, And as long as I live, it's my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, so the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It's rather a splendid torch I have hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing on to future generations. So what is this quality of compassion that I'm sure you've all felt and touched and been touched by in these days. In the, in the text, it's classically talked about as a quivering of the heart, the way our heart resonates with the pain and suffering of ourselves or somebody else when we meet somebody who's in some kind of torment, some kind of anguish. And it's the ability that we have, the heart's ability to feel, to feel the resonance of suffering. Compassion means to suffer with. We feel the suffering of each other. And I'm sure you've noticed that in these days. This is a, another description. This is from Nyanaponikatera, um, who's a wonderful, was a wonderful scholar and translator. This is, it's in somewhat archaic English because this is from some time ago, but it really, I think, captures some of the qualities of compassion. Love not the sensuous fire that burns and scorches and tortures, but more love that lies like a soft but firm hand on the ailing beings, ever unchanging in its sympathy, without wavering, unconcerned with any response it meets. Love that is comforting coolness to those who burn with the fire of suffering and passion, that is life-giving warmth to those abandoned in the cold desert of loneliness, and to those who are shivering in the frost of a loveless world, to those whose hearts have become as if empty and dry by the repeated calls for help in deepest despair. Love that is a sublime nobility of heart and intellect, which is always ready to help. So in its simplest form, it's, the, it's the, the innate response we have, say we're in the meditation hall and we hear somebody crying. It's just that initial tenderness, resonance, sense of empathy that we, that we feel quite naturally. It's an innate response of the heart when the heart's open. And it's a feeling also that that senses into the commonality or the universality of our suffering, that we we know the fragility of life, that we know the tenderness of our heart, and what it it means to try and be awake, to be alive in this world, 
with all the joys and sorrows that we have to live through that Gina talked about. And as you, um, especially on retreat, when we become more sensitive, more tuned, more aware, more awake, and more open, the heart opens, we also begin to feel a certain, probably a more refined sense of uh, sensitivity. We feel more tenderly uh, life and its struggle and the suffering. I know when I teach it at Spirit Rock, in... um, where the seasons aren't so harsh, and so there's a lot more um, critters around, and animals, and birds, and, um, and it's a, it's a really sweet thing to to have so much life around the place. And one of the things I, I enjoy is we have a lot of swallows who nest in spring and summer and early fall, and they often nest around uh, the meditation hall and the bathrooms. And there's a nest that's always that comes every year that's uh, right outside the the gents, um, the male's the man's bathroom, and the nest is so fragile you can always see the babies poking their heads out, and it's a kind of a vulnerable place because you have you know hundreds of yogis walking in and out every day, um, and they're somewhat shivering, um, either with fear or just because they're young and perhaps cold and. Um, and it's just interesting to watch how the heart just naturally you know, almost like misses a breath when you see that tenderness, that life and the vulnerability and that's really true for all life You know, we all have that vulnerability and some things evoke that more than others St. John of the Cross once said tenderly I now touch all things knowing one day we will part Tenderly, I now touch all things. That's the heart of compassion. It's the feeling of care. It's the, it's the feeling of wanting to take care of somebody when they're suffering, when they're in pain, when they're in anguish. Somebody came in today and um, was just talking about how hard they were treating themselves, how harshly, how um, much pressure and pushing and uh, how much sort of internal cruelty there was that you were seeing. And because of the practice, there was, there was no resistance to the reality of that. There was just a letting in of how painful that is to talk to ourselves, to push ourselves, to put that pressure on ourselves. And what was beautiful to see was her heart was so filled with compassion for the suffering that was going on. Sometimes we feel compassion as a quality of sadness at 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 how one and the way humans treat each other, the way the, the, the multitude of suffering through war and oppression and greed and violence and racism and all the different ways that we inflict really unnecessary suffering. I once was listening to uh, a story that a friend was telling of a woman who um, was writing about her very difficult adolescent years and 
she was she she had a very difficult uh, childhood and ran away from home a lot. The home life was very difficult. And one particular time, she ran away um, and eventually got found by the police and was brought back home uh, when she was sixteen. And uh, she was feeling very remorseful and guilty, and her mother was uh, very angry and and cold and critical. And at some point when she got home, she, she, she said to her mother, she said, you know, I'm really sorry that I did that. Uh, do you still love me? And her mother turned around and said, how could anybody love you? And she's writing this story 50 years after that incident. And she talks about how many years it took to heal from just that one sentence. You know, so... Sometimes the, the, the flavor of compassion can be the sense of sadness about the way that we mistreat each other or get mistreated ourselves. We can also feel it in response to what's happening in a more global way, say to what's happening to the earth, what's happening to uh, the environment, what's happening to so many species that are struggling to survive. I know when I first started hearing about the Navy's sonar and how it was affecting the the um, the ears and the the auditory system of whales and throwing off their equilibrium and whales were showing up and beach, beaching all different parts of the world because of the the deafening Navy sonar. You know, just really, you know, I have a very deep affinity for whales, and just so sad that um, the effects of our actions. And yet when the heart's open, we can hold that. There's a way that we cannot learn to push it away and shut down and get angry, which is a defense. There's a way that we can learn to open to feel the grief and the sadness. That, that, that in itself calls forth the quality of compassion. Another aspect of compassion is uh, the way that we can feel into when somebody's causing suffering or inflicting harm in some way. And we can see very clearly and feel very clearly. And it allows us to see not just the action, but the suffering that's underneath that's causing that person to act out violently or aggressively or with ignorance. This is the way compassion can have a very deep understanding of human behavior. You know, I think about that when I was watching the trials um, of Saddam Hussein. You know, just just seeing seeing his, you know, from the time when he was leader of the country to the time that he was arrested and then imprisoned and on trial, and how his whole being. Uh, it was just so clear the suffering, the great suffering behind that man and his actions. And compassion is also not just a feeling. Even though we're on retreat and we're primarily with our own experience and uh, wishing matter for others, Ultimately, compassion is really a verb. It's, a, it's an action. It's a movement of the heart that wishes to relieve. So although, as I said, there's not that much opportunity for you to engage in that in, in a proactive way here, um, 
It's an important aspect of this quality. Shantideva, a wonderful uh, Buddhist master from I think the 8th century, has a wonderful text called the Bodhicharya Bhattara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. A Bodhisattva is one who, uh, where this quality of Bodhicitta has arisen and has dedicated their life to helping relieve the suffering of people around. And um, so this, this book is a beautiful guide uh, or description of the outflow of this, this quality. And in one, in one section he says, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. So when this quality becomes fully bloomed, it dissolves the sense of separation between ourselves and others. So how do we start developing this quality? Very essential quality in the spiritual life. As you've probably seen, you get plenty of opportunities to practice it here. It's hard to sit for more than a few hours, if you're lucky, without coming across some sense of difficulty, some struggle with your mind, some physical pain in your body, some memory, uh, or some pain from the past. There's one of my favorite sayings from Achan Chah. He has this expression. He said, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering, we run towards it. Usually that's our innate response to suffering and our pain is we run away, thinking we can get away from it. And of course, it just comes back around the other way and hits us in, you know, on the back of the head. And this practice is, in that way, somewhat counterintuitive in that it's a movement towards what's happening. And in this case, if, it, if there's pain or difficulty, we are leaning our attention towards it. And that really is the beginning of how this quality of compassion arises, by turning very directly to meet, to hold, to feel, to sense, to face our difficulty, or the difficulty in others. And it's amazing, as you've probably seen, just by doing a very simple practice, whether it's a mindfulness practice or just saying these simple metaphrases, how much anguish and toil and strife goes on, you know? It's a very simple thing we're doing here, you know? Instruction's very simple. Wish nice things for yourself. Wish nice things for others. And what happens, you know? A whole whirlwind of mental torture and struggle and fighting with our mind and fighting with ourselves and hating our body because it's hurting and hating the instructions and getting really reactive to other people because they're noisy or breathing or (laughs) eating too much. You know, it's it's always amusing to me what happens on these meta-retreats because 
because we're developing concentration and not so much mindfulness, our sensitivity gets really refined and our, you know, our awareness grows, but it, it, we become very sensitive and yet th- there's less, there seems to be less room to deal with intrusion. And we get much more reactive than we would generally than on mindfulness retreat. Because in mindfulness retreat, there's more awareness to what, to the full spread of the picture. So, so and that's I know that's very challenging because we move from these states of feeling really kind and caring and loving, you know, and then somebody drops their fork in the dining room. It's like, oh, God, shut up! <laughs> I was just in a meta state. <laughs> How dare you! And then it's like, and and then that, if that's not bad enough, then it's the recrimination. Oh my God, you're so grumpy. <laughs> you're so unmetaphor. <laughs> you're so reactive. And then we feel guilty. You know. Did they hear us? Did they see us? Did they? <laughs> and so there's a, there's a lot of that flip flopping or going back and forwards between these very peaceful, sublime, connected states, and then. We slip out of that, and the, you know, as what as, constant one of the qualities of concentration is it is it temporarily um, suppresses to some degree the defilements, the kleshas, the, the difficult tendencies, and then when the concentration wanes, guess what happens? It's like a rubber band, the difficult states of mind, the habitual states of mind return sometimes with greater force. So don't be surprised by that. Uh, it's also just part of the practice. So as I said, we have many opportunities here to, to work with difficult states of mind, even though they're, they're, the environment's very benign and our practice is very benign there's still plenty of pain and suffering that comes up just by the fact that we have a body and we're sitting still for many, many hours a day and walking slowly. You know, there's, I know a lot of you f- are feeling a lot of physical discomfort, pain, old injuries, aches, stiffness, tension. And again, this is a wonderful place to, to turn the, 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 the lens of metta towards what's happening. You know, sometimes we can um, notice physical discomfort and then just notice it and come back to the phrases. But other times the pain's too, the pain's too strong, physical pain uh, or emotional pain. And it's important to, uh, an important part of the practice is learning how to, to meet that, to be with it, to feel it, to sense it, with this quality of kindness, this quality of care, the quality of acceptance, as much as we can. And the doorway to opening to it more fully is to recognize the suffering nature of it. Oh, my body is in pain. This is suffering. I'm in some kind of anguish, some kind of physical torture. This is painful. Can we let the, 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 the reality that this is painful in Normally we don't. Normally we recognize it and push it away or we recognize it, we, we avoid it or we hate it. 
get into aversion, or we try fixing it. What can I do? Well, I'll get three more pillows and two cushions and a blanket, and, you know, um, I spend a whole three-month retreat, not a whole three-month retreat, but a lot of it. I had this um, thing where I, I couldn't, s- there was the nerve endings in my sit bones got very painful, which was a drag on a three-month retreat because you know, I was doing a lot of sitting. So I kept visualizing this chair that was suspended from the ceiling that didn't, that I wouldn't have to use my buttocks to sit on it and that was a lot of proliferation <laughs> as opposed to just feeling, oh, discomfort, pain, opening to the suffering. Oh yeah, this is suffering. This is the first noble truth. Because it's only when we acknowledge and turn and, and f- open to the reality, oh, this is suffering, that the heart begins to open. It's, 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 it's an essential stepping stone to feel, oh yeah, this is suffering, this is painful, this hurts, this sucks. That it can begin to allow the heart to open. Oh yeah, it can allow the heart to open to some tenderness. And sometimes it's appropriate to, in that moment, to uh, you can either adjust the metaphrase or just add a compassion phrase. May I be free of suffering. May I be free of physical pain. May I be free of emotional pain. So the matter is just is speaking very specifically in that moment to the experience of suffering. So the movement of matter becomes a natural movement of compassion. When I was teaching with Sylvia last week, uh, two weeks ago, Sylvia Borstein, who's a wonderful teacher and a wonderful meta teacher, uh, the phrase that she uses that I couldn't get out of my head when she's talking about this is, is, you know, she's talking about feeling physical suffering or when she gets startled by something that's been challenging, like someone drops a plate in the hall. And the first thing she says to herself is, oh, sweetheart, (laughs) you're suffering. (laughs) And so that comes into my head. (laughs) It's not the language I normally use. Oh, sweetheart. (laughs) But it works. (laughs) So whatever language you use, what's important is this turning, turning towards our suffering with a kindness and like, oh, yeah, this is painful. Can I open to this? Can I be with this? I'm not trying to fix it, not trying to get rid of it. Just, oh, yeah, this is suffering. And as soon as the, as soon as the heart opens in that way, the whole experience is much easier. You know, it's also, um, you know, we have our physical suffering. We have the emotional pain that comes up that we, we can turn to in the same way. You know, whether we're feeling grief or sadness or loss or jealousy or loneliness. To name what's happening. Oh, fear. Oh, you know, again, if, if we can just, if we can, if it's mild, we can just recognize it, come back to the, the phrases and the practice. But often these things come up and they sort of like a storm in our consciousness. And again, the important thing to, to see, to feel, to name, oh, sadness, loss, oh, this is painful. And let the heart sort of reverberate or permeate that experience with compassion. And there's other ways that we, we experience suffering. 
especially as our mindfulness grows and our understanding of Dharma practice grows, and we see the ways that we cause suffering for ourselves, like in the story about falling in the hole and still falling in the hole, and it's a habit and we still fall down the hole. We see the ways, perhaps, that we get caught in the hindrances I talked about the other night. We get caught in being bored and restless, so we start fantasizing. Oh, you know, if only I got, you know, coffee and, you know, whatever food fantasy you've got going on. As, 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 uh, as, we, as uh, we deepen in the practice, we need all the more compassion to see all the ways that we create suffering for ourselves. We see it and we still do it and not judge ourselves. A friend of mine was sitting here on a, on a three-month retreat um, and she was bored one day and decided to go into the kitchen to check out what the menu was for the next week. And she, re- and she saw that the, ne- the following Friday was pizza. Ooh, pizza, how exciting. <laughs> this is really exciting on a three-month retreat. So it was Monday when she saw, so the rest of the week, all she thought about was pizza. What kind of pizza? Is it going to be a thick pizza, thin pizza? I hope it's got mozzarella, you know, and all the things you could spin out around the pizza. And Friday comes, and she doesn't want to be quite at the front of the line because that would be too obvious that she's being, you know, greedy. So she you know, waits to get second in the line, gets to the table, gets and loads up the pizza, gets to, sits down, you know, really gets really mindful. Okay, I'm going to really feel this, savor every moment. You know, really slow eating pizza, and then the thought came: Ah, it's pizza. <laughs> It's just pizza. <laughs> What's the big deal? <laughs> it tastes like pizza. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> so we see these things, we know we do them, and we need some compassion for the ways that we're still deluded and we still get caught. Or thinking, you know, I'll be happy when this cold weather passes. How many times have you gone outside and resisted that it's freezing? <laughs> Thinking, I'll be happy if it's warmer. You know, we know that it's folly to postpone happiness for some future condition. You know, we can have preferences, and preferences are fine, but to get attached to them and pin our happiness on some condition arising like warmth, good luck, and it's, you know, it's, it's very easy, to, again, to be caught in judgment and criticism. Oh, you should know this already. You know, you've been practicing for 10 years. Like, get over yourself. And it's just, oh, no. It's another place we, we, we suffer. You know, we delude ourselves and get attached. Or we believe our thoughts. You know, we believe our stories that we tell ourselves. So... I just want to say a few things about what, um, what gets in the way of us residing in this compassionate place. You know, the first thing is we, we have an instinctual fear of pain, physical pain, emotional pain. There's a natural instinctual sort of organism response of recoiling. We think if we move towards the pain and feel it, it's going to make it worse. It's, we're going to get stuck in it. If I really open to the, to the sadness that's sort of been hovering for the last 13 years... If I really actually feel it, I'm going to completely drown forever. 
Ramdas once said, it's one thing to have our heart engaged, it's another to have it overwhelmed or broken. Here lies our aversion to suffering. We feel like if we move into the suffering and pain that we're going to somehow completely lose ourselves. Or we think, if I ignore it, it will go away. I had a friend who um, was many years into his marriage and it was, go- it was, it was difficult, and I said, what are you going to do about it? He says, you know, I'm just going to ignore it and hope it goes away. <laughs> and he really be- he believed that. <laughs> and they're still married 10 years later, so who knows, what do I know? But You'll kill me if, if I knew, knew I told that story. <laughs> Sometimes we shut down because uh, we're over, we, we've, we've, we've been overexposed, say, to media, to input of, of suffering, tragedy, and we've gone kind of numb. I think numbness is actually one of the greatest obstacles to compassion, where the heart's just become frozen out of previous grief or overwhelm, and, and we just numb out. We either use substances or distraction or TV or we get busy, we work hard. And I think the most common one is um, instead of feeling and sensing the pain and physical suffering and emotional suffering, we think about it. We think about it, we analyze it, we critique it, we judge it, we try to fix it, we try to plan how we can do it differently, we strategize. What if I'd done that? What if I could do this? And actually, we could, and you know, many maybe you know, six meditations down the line, it's like, oh, maybe I should just feel this. Have you done that? Have you spent a lot of time? Some pain comes up, and then you spend the rest of the sitting thinking about it. It doesn't actually resolve anything. And what it does is it keeps things shut down. It doesn't allow this heart of compassion to arise. And I want to put the, the caveat that this, none of this is easy. It all sounds very easy. Open your heart, feel the suffering, open to the pain. It's not. It's really difficult. It's why it's difficult. It's why it's slow. And it's why this practice is very courageous. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of, a lot of strength to turn to ourselves, to be with ourselves for a week and face all of the demons, all of the difficulties, all the things that we probably mostly hab- habitually avoid in our lives. So take some credit for yourselves for looking. You know, Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa coined the phrase the spiritual warrior. And this is warrior practice. It's not easy. He wrote this, which I really like. He said, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. If you search for the awakened heart, there is nothing but tenderness. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you'll feel tremendous sadness. This experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. And as you know, what the world so needs is this tender heart of compassion that's courageous. You know, what's, what's the, the, the world is burning for people with more compassion, with more courage to face the suffering, to speak out about the suffering. 
And lastly, the Dalai Lama once said about compassion, he said, if you want, to, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So these practices are all wisdom practices. They all remind us how to live well and wisely. So the second quality, mudita, which uh, loosely translated as appreciative joy, sometimes translated as sympathetic joy. It was lovely being up here this morning when Gina gave her announcement about her impending grandmotherhood. And um, the whole room flooded with mudita. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> like everyone, ah. Oh. <laughs> I was seeing a hundred faces just oozing with, with mudita, with, with, with appreciative, sympathetic joy. That, you know, if, you knew, if you're wondering what this quality is, that's the quality. It's the heart of metta, of, of warmth, kindness, open to, to the joy and the happiness of others, or the success of others. There's a lovely description, one of my favorite pieces in the, in the texts, where the Buddha, after his awakening, gave the discourse of the Four Noble Truths to his five ascetic buddies. Um, and uh, after a long period of discourse, uh, one, I think it was over several days, one of the uh, ascetics uh, woke up to the, the realization uh, that the Buddha was teaching. And um, as much as the Buddha ever is described as getting excited, he said, oh, Kondana knows, Kondana knows which I take to be wonderful, appreciative joy. Like, you know, he's, he's, here he has attained this very sublime understanding. He's trying to impart it to, to his uh, fellow practitioners, and then someone understands it. Someone has a deep realization. And he's like, yes. It was a, it was a profound moment of mudita, I think. It's also defined, mudita is also defined as to be pleased. It's a kind of gladness. The Buddha talked about it as the mind deliverance of gladness. It delivers us from, from many unwholesome mental states, which I'll talk about in a minute. And when we start to look for this quality, the Buddha talked about it as being very rare and, and of the, one of the more difficult, of the, of the, the most difficult of the Brahma Viharas, the, these four divine abodes. Um, even though it is rare and more difficult to establish, there's many places that we can turn to to develop it. And, and it's one of my favorite practices because it really is a joyful practice. We're celebrating the joy in others and how good does it get than celebrating the joy of others? As the Dalai Lama once said, you increase your chances of happiness six billion to one. So, so my favorite places to practice this um, one is just being with uh, parents with their children, especially young children. Um, when I went home to England a couple of years ago, uh, my sister, who's been trying to have children for a long time, she just turned 45 and uh, just had a baby. And again, it was the same thing of just lots of mudita. Uh, another place I like to, to practice this is at airports, standing by the arrivals and just watching families coming from all over the world and just this beautiful happiness and joy. It's very spontaneous and, and easeful. And just it's very easy for mudita to flow. Another is at weddings. You, know, you often drive by weddings. 
uh, you know, at civic halls and churches, and just appreciating the the happiness of that of that of that beautiful day. Uh, in Bodh Gaya, where I used to go pretty much every year for for many years, um, the, the mood to practice for me there would be uh, watching. Uh, particularly at that time in January when there was a big, um, many teachings, Tibetan teachings going on, these uh, Bhutanese families would, would, would come on these uh, trucks, these sort of backup, sort of large pickup trucks, and they would be standing for three days and three nights from Bhutan to get to Bodh Gaya. And they'd arrive and then go to the temple, um, and just the, the profound devotion and joy for them to be in this very sacred, the most sacred place for them, uh, was beautiful. Also, um, being a teacher uh, on these retreats um, is another beautiful place for me. I get to work with this when people come in for interviews and just talk about um, different things that happen, insights, sort of moments of breakthrough, moments of uh, self-love or kindness that emerge. And just it's just a beautiful thing to see, to watch people blossom. Blake once said, He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He who kisses the joy as it flies <clears throat> lives in eternity's sunrise. So this practice is inviting us to turn our attention, to turn our hearts towards joy, towards beauty, towards success, towards happiness in ourselves, in others, in the world. There's an expression, since I'm a nature lover, there's a, I love this expression. It says, Earth is crammed, <clears throat> Earth is crammed with heaven. It's true. You take a walk outside. It's heaven on earth, as they say. This is from G.K. Chesterton. You say grace before meals. That's okay. But I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play, and grace before I open a book, before sketching and painting and swimming and walking and playing and dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. So many places to say grace to uh, an aspect of this, you know, the, the translation I like of appreciative joy. It's appreciating what we have. It's appreciating the beauty that's here, the abundance. And when the heart's open, you know that it's where the qualities of mindfulness and metta really fuse beautifully because the quality of mindfulness wakes us up. We become more aware, more alive, more awake. And the metta practice opens the heart and the fusion of those two means we, be, we become incredibly receptive much more easily touched by beauty and love in the world. I remember when I first started practicing in the East End of London, which was pretty run down at that time in the early 80s. It was very, um, as I say, very gray and a lot of concrete. And um, my practice was to um, turn towards any smidgen of nature I could find. And... I found that even just the teeniest thing, the teeniest pieces of grass in the cracks in the pavement or the, the few birds that were fluttering around in the eaves um, or the, the, the cloudscapes um, 
just very simple. Because I was learning about this quality of mindfulness, it just sort of woke up, it made me awaken to the beauty that was all around despite living in a concrete jungle. So um, if this is such a beautiful place to hang out, this quality of mudita, why aren't we just bathing and oozing in (laughs) appreciative joy all the time? Well, you might just want to reflect on that question for yourself. (laughs) Why is that? So, here's a few things. One is, when we see somebody really happy or successful or abundant, what happens? One of the first things that can happen in that sort of in our sort of egoic state, it triggers envy, it triggers jealousy, it triggers I want what they've got. They've got the goodies, I want it. No matter how much we might have already, we immediately forget all of the abundance we have, and it's like, oh, they just got a new job in Hawaii, it's half time, and they got a huge salary, and they just met their soulmate. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Why them? <laughs> why not? Why didn't I get that job? I had that once when, when a colleague of mine got this really amazing Dharma job. There's not many Dharma jobs out in the mainstream culture, but she got one. <laughs> with, a, with, a, with what I regard as a huge salary. A salary, nobody gets a salary in the Dharma. <laughs> and I was really jealous. <laughs> I didn't want the job, <laughs> but I was really jealous. <laughs> and then, of course, it turns out that it wasn't as good as it turned out to be. And I felt even worse for feeling, you know, bad about it, jealous for her. I remember doing meta practice here um, some years ago, and uh, for some reason, we were d- we were having interviews together. We were in pairs, and. Um, the friend of mine who I was practicing with, um, she was having very sublime, profound things happening in the meditation, and mine was very humdrum and boring and difficult in the struggle, and I was really jealous. <laughs> I'd see her walking really mindfully and happily, and I'd go, God, I bet she's in really great states of mind. <laughs> bah humbug. <laughs> We often have this idea that happiness is a limited pool. You know, if someone's really ecstatic over there in the corner, blissing out in meditation or in the dining room or in our lives, that somehow there's going to be less for me. You ever felt that? There's something like, oh, God, they're really happy today. Oh my God, they're really happy too. Oh dear. Or we just simply compare ourselves. You know, we walk in the room and someone's looking very blissful, just very open, soft. They must be almost enlightened, or at least in full-blown meta. And instead of going, oh, how lovely for them, you know, how sweet, I know what that's like. I, I may it last for a long time, you know, may it grow. We go, oh, God, what does that say about me? I mean, look at me, look at my practice. It's been shoddy today. You know, we, we, we just slip into self-referencing, into comparing, into putting ourselves down. So we feel threatened as opposed to being able to celebrate. 
or we have a judgment about what somebody else is happy about. You know, people get happy and joyful for many different things, and a lot of things we might not relate to. My parents came over here a long time ago, and they went to Disneyland, <laughs> and they had like a great time. Like they just loved it. All the cartoon characters and Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and and I'm like, you like that? <laughs> I couldn't relate to what they were into, and I had a, a lot of judgment about it. So sometimes our own views and preferences and judgments get in the way of appreciating that regardless of what I think about it, this makes them happy. The same when I came over here from the States and people were raving about, you know, when I, when I first moved to the Bay Area and the 49ers were doing really well, and uh, a lot of my best friends were really into the 49ers, and, you know, I was like, you call that football? <laughs> That's not football. <laughs> Now it it is football. It's okay. That stuff over there was soccer. I get that now. (laughs) Or we might notice just a simple meanness of spirit that we just want someone's happiness just to just to come down a few notches. Like just like, can you just tone it down? All that happiness stuff, that bliss, you just kind of... Or <clears throat> we're so used to looking at people's faults and problems and deficiencies that we just don't see it. We just miss their joy. Or we get contracted when somebody starts to have the same experiences that we've had, that we cherish as like unique and like part of me and my own or they start to um, gain some of the things that we've gained, whether it's through our practice or through our work. or And there's a little contraction like, ah, that's mine. That was my experience. You can't have that too. And all these things, all these places are very painful. You know, the expression green with envy, you know, green with envy, that's a very painful place. Envy, comparing judging, contracting, fearing about the limited pool of happiness, that they're all suffering. And they're also very human. And not to, um, just to be watchful again of not judging ourselves, but actually when that arises, you know, know, because we go through all these different states of heart many times a day. We might be sitting, feeling quite neutral in the morning, and then we start connecting with some metta, and then some difficult pain arises, and we start to feel some compassion and tenderness, and then we start cultivating metta for a friend who's doing well, and we start to feel some joy, some appreciation, some gladness, and then we start feeling competitive and envious. And so we go through, we fluctuate through these, you know, a lot in the day, just like we fluctuate through the eight worldly winds that Gina was talking about yesterday. And to remember that when we hit those difficult places, to again bring that tenderness of compassion. And some of the things, briefly, just before I conclude, that support 
this practice of, of mudita. Um, I think our practice of mindfulness supports it tremendously, just paying attention, waking up, um, taking an, an active delight in things, which means paying attention. As that saying goes in Vegas, you have to be present to win. You have to be present to experience delight. You have to, the senses need to be open. We need to be embodied in our senses, not just lost upstairs in our mind. We can practice what the Buddha talks about, inclining the mind to the wholesome, inclining the mind to positive states of mind, inclining the mind to that which uplifts the heart. You know, and as we're doing our metta practice, you know, we've been saying over the days, do what's easiest and do what gladdens your heart. That may be walking outside, it may be walking briskly, it may, you know, just different things that support um, our well-being, our heart. Replacing the habit of seeing others' faults and foibles and judgments, replacing that with seeing the good. You know, if you're sitting in the dining room looking around at people, then if you're going to do that, you may as well practice seeing the goodness, seeing our common humanity, seeing um, the beauty, seeing, seeing the goodness, how different the world would be if that happened. Also, um, cultivating the quality of gratitude and appreciation, just realizing what we have, the blessings that we have, the abundance that we have, just, I mean, it's incredible good fortune to be living today, to be on a retreat, to be cooked for three meals a day, to have access to Dharma teachings, to have a healthy body to get here, to have support from your family and work to be here. I mean, just innumerable conditions that make this an incredible blessing for you all to be here, for us to all to be here. And so turning, shifting the, the mind from deficiency to what's wrong, what's not good enough, what I don't have to, I have plenty. Life is full. There's a lot of grace in my life. And the phrases of mudita, um, simple phrases like um, when we're reflecting on someone who's doing well, um, the simple phrase, may your happiness and success continue to grow. I delight in your happiness. I delight in your success. May your happiness and success flourish. How would that be to hold when we meet somebody who's happy versus, mm. <laughs> This is a poem from Hafiz, part of a poem. He says, is your caravan lost? It is if you no longer weep from gratitude or happiness or weep from being cut deep with the awareness of the extraordinary beauty that emanates from the most sim- simple act and common object. My dear, is your caravan lost? It is if you can no longer be kind to yourself and loving to those who must live with the sometimes difficult task of loving you. So, these are some of the multifaceted qualities of the heart, the qualities of mudita, appreciative joy, qualities of compassion, this tender, caring response to suffering. Um... Invite these qualities as they come in. Learn how to nurture them. Learn to understand what gets in the way of them being fully developed. 
and know that they both exist within our own hearts as seeds, as potential, and as innate qualities. There are innate qualities that can spring forth when the heart is open. So let's sit for a few minutes. So we have some time for some walking and we'll sit and chant at nine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.